Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13? And as you do, we're going to dismiss kids to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are pre-K through third grade who want to meet in the back. Well, this morning we come to the final sermon in the book of Nehemiah. We've been walking through Nehemiah since the fall of last year. We've been seeing about how God's grace puts broken people back together again as we look at this beautiful, amazing story of God restoring the walls of the city of Jerusalem through Nehemiah, a great man of faith, a great man of God. And so we come this morning to our final chapter, a wild and woolly chapter in the book of Nehemiah. And next week we're starting a new sermon series called Teach Me How to Pray where we'll be walking through some of the most famous passage, uh, prayers and maybe some not-so-famous prayers in the Old Testament leading, through, leading to Jesus, teaching us the Lord's Prayer, and then, of course, the High Priestly Prayer in John 17. So that'll be next, but for now, we finish up with the series of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. This is God's Word. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chamber of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials, and I said to them, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses uh, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mathaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God 
and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they had brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that they sold food. Tyrants and those also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates and, and no, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers and all kinds of, of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, Foreign women made him, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. 
We ask that you would speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most fairy tales have happy endings. There's a hero, someone like Nehemiah. There's a villain, somebody like Sanballat or Tobiah or Geshem the Arab. There's conflict, there's resolution. The hero defeats the villain. The prince marries the princess. And in the end, say it with me, they all lived happily ever after. Does this story have a happy ending? Do the Israelites live happily ever after? Does Nehemiah slay the dragon? Does Nehemiah save the people? Yes and no. It's complicated. Now, if you're a positive, upbeat, glass is half full type of person, you might say, well, of course there's a happy ending. The people are back home, they're in Jerusalem, God has delivered them, the temple has been rebuilt, the walls of the city have been restored, they all lived happily ever after. If you are a negative, pessimistic, emo, glass is half empty type of person, you might be saying, not so fast. Here in chapter 13, the Israelites have broken literally every single promise that they made from chapters 10 through 12. They're not supporting the priests. They're not supporting the Levites. They're working on the Sabbath day. They're marrying foreign people. They're not teaching their children about God. And meanwhile, Tobiah, who is Nehemiah's arch enemy has been given an apartment inside the temple. This is the worst ending ever. What's the lesson? The lesson here is this. Most of the time, life doesn't end with chapter 12. Most of the time, life doesn't end with the mountaintop experience. Most of the time, Life doesn't end with a wedding. Most of the time, life ends with a funeral. Most of the time. But not all the time. The Bible doesn't end with a funeral. The Bible ends with a wedding. The Bible doesn't end with sorrow. The Bible ends with joy. According to the Bible, all of God's people live happily ever after. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed. It's called the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's then. But what about now? How do we live in the gap between the already and the not yet? How do we live for today in all of the brokenness, in all of the sin, with one eye toward heaven and the hope that we have because of Jesus and the resurrection. Here are some of my ideas this morning. This is not the outline, just some ideas that I had as we lay the groundwork for our study this morning. The first idea is this. There is a happy ending for the people of God. 
We have to remember that. It's called the resurrection of the dead. It's literally on the last page of the Bible. As you read the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, you will see that Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, we win. For we are in Jesus, united to him by faith, and he is in us by the power of his Holy Spirit, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. If you believe in Jesus, your story ends with new heavens and new earth. That means there is no more sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. No more impossible burgers. No more spam phone calls. No more boy bands. It's going to be awesome. Now, the second big idea is this. Until that happy ending, there are a lot of unhappy endings. Like the Israelites, we sometimes fall back into sinful, destructive, toxic habits. Like Nehemiah, we are sometimes sinned against. This week, many of us have been reading the book of Job in our chronological Bible reading Job had a terrible time of things. Job lost everything. He lost his home, his family. His whole life was ruined. It was a disaster. Now, ultimately, Job ends with a happy ending as all of these things are restored and then some. But it takes 41 chapters for him to get there. Because we're finite people living in a, a fallen world, we often experience heartache, pain, and sorrow, and frustration. Now, we don't put that sort of stuff on the church website, but it is a reality for us as the people of God. Bad things happen sometimes, often more times than we're readily willing to admit. The third big idea is this. In spite of all of this, we can live like happily ever after people right now. We don't have to wait until the resurrection of the dead to start living like sons and daughters of the king. We can live abundant lives. We can be happy. We can be free. We can be faithful and fruitful. We can be joyful. We can love and serve other people right now. Through Jesus, we can live like happily ever after people. So how do we do that? Well, I am glad that you asked. I discovered six ways. Now, you should be aware, originally I came up with 12. And somewhere up in heaven, Ezra, a man who once preached a six-hour sermon, is saying, Go for it, Joel. <laughs> Hit that 12-pointer. Well, I'm not going for it. But we will walk through the passage to together, and my hope is by the time that we're done, we will see how to live like happily ever after people, even as we live in this 
not-so-happily-ever-after world. I think, with God's help, we can do it. Okay? Are you ready? I'm going to preach anyway. Are you ready? All right, let's go. Let's take a closer look. First big idea, happily-ever-after people need to be rescued. I distinctly remember some of you missing church on September 26th, 2021, when we started this series. And so, let me remind you how we got here. It all started with Adam and Eve. Okay, we're not going to go that far back. Don't worry, some of you looked a little bit nervous. It all started with King David. Better? Better. King David was a man after God's own heart. He was a shepherd. He was a warrior. He was a poet. He was a musician. He famously fought and killed the great giant Goliath, defending the honor of his God and protecting and rescuing the people of Israel. He was also a sinner. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. His hands were stained by the blood of many men, so many men that God forbid him from building the temple of the Lord. And yet, David was forgiven. In spite of his sin, God made promises to David saying, Someday, I'm going to give you a son. That son is going to rule the whole world. That son is going to live forever. When that son takes his rightful place on the throne as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, all of God's people are going to live happily ever after. That gospel promise, that promise of healing and hope, that promise of rescue and redemption and restoration should have turned God's people into happily ever after people right then and there. But it didn't. People rebelled against God so frequently and so severely that they were exiled to Babylon. The the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the temple, the very meeting place between God and men. They destroyed the, the walls surrounding the city of Jerusalem. They turned God's free people into slaves. After 70 years, a number specifically prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah, God brought his people back home. Led by Ezra, who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and Nehemiah, who restored the city walls, God rescued his people. He forgave their sins. Now, that background is critically important if we want to understand how to live like happily ever after people because ultimately, happily ever after isn't something that we achieve. It's something that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ, the greater Nehemiah who came to rescue us. Life ultimately has a happy ending because Jesus writes the story. Jesus redeems us. Jesus restores us. 
Jesus sets us free. Jesus sustains us and empowers us and enables us to become more and more, day by day, who we are as sons and daughters of the King. That's the background for this story, and it's why we have hope. Like the Israelites, all of us fall down. Like the Israelites, all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. Like the Israelites, we are all redeemed and restored through a Redeemer. That new, like a new and better Nehemiah, Jesus breaks our chains, sets us free, and brings us back home. That is something that Jesus did when he died on the cross. That is something Jesus is doing as God the Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our hearts. It is something that Jesus will do when Jesus returns for his second advent to make all things new. All we have to do to receive the blessings of that happily ever after is believe in Jesus Christ to receive his grace and walk with him as he leads us back home. Have you been rescued? Have you been redeemed? Have you been restored? Do you believe? The gospel makes us happily ever after people. Not just someday, right now. Second big idea, happily ever after people need God's word. Verse 1, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, we see that God's word is powerful. We see that God's word changes us. Whenever the Israelites read the Bible, they changed for the better, and whenever they neglected the reading of God's Word, they changed for the worse. That's because the Bible is living and active. It's not like a normal human book. We don't simply read these stories to gain information about people who lived a long time ago in a very different place, people with very hard-to-pronounce names people who have mostly been forgotten to history, it's not that kind of book. It's a book that we read and in so doing have communion with the living God. When we read God's word, the spirit of God makes the Bible come alive. There's a sense in which when we read these stories, we get a sense of who God is and what God wants, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. That's important because, like the Israelites, we often forget. Like the Israelites, we often have spiritual amnesia. Now, just imagine what that would be like waking up every day with complete amnesia, having no idea who you are, having no idea where you are, having no idea who these people are, having no idea what you're supposed to do. Now, if you're not that imaginative, they actually made a movie about it. It's called Memento. It stars the whole cast of The Matrix, except for Keanu Reeves, which is probably why most of you have never heard of it. 
big mistake. You always want to cast Keanu Reeves. But I digress. Now, wouldn't that be terrible? Wouldn't that be unnerving? Who would want to live like that? And yet, often we do. Now, imagine the alternative. Imagining waking up every single day knowing exactly who you are. Imagine waking up every single day knowing exactly who God is and what God wants you to do. Imagine waking up every day knowing that God loves you, knowing that God will take care of you. Imagine knowing that the final chapter of the story has already been written. Imagine knowing that Jesus wins. Imagine knowing that love wins. Imagine knowing that mercy wins. Imagine knowing that justice wins. You can know. You can read your Bible and you can know. If you read the Bible, it will change your life. Happily ever after people need the Bible. The third big idea is this. Happily ever after people need happily ever after friends. Friends. Verse 1. And in the Bible was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now last week we talked a little bit about holiness, and we said that holiness essentially involves two things. Holiness involves being set apart from the world, and holiness involves being set apart for the world. So we're set apart from the world, but also set apart for the world. In this context, in this chapter, the emphasis falls on being set apart from the world, which is something that the Israelites clearly had a very hard time doing. As we find them at work and at play in chapter 13, we find that they did business with unbelieving people, they married unbelieving people, they had children with unbelieving people, and here's what happened. They slowly but surely drifted away from God. They slowly but surely drifted away from the church. The world's values became their values and over time, they lost their faith. As a Christian and as a dad, this is the saddest verse in the whole chapter. Here's what can happen if we're not surrounded by happily ever after people. If we don't have Christian friends, if we don't walk with people who are walking with the Lord. Verse 24, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Their children didn't speak the language of faith. Their children couldn't read the Bible. Their children 
couldn't talk to grandma and grandpa about the Lord. About what God had done in their lives and what God had done in the life of Israel and his faithfulness demonstrated from generation to generation. It has been said that we are the average of the five people that we spend the most time with. In other words, we are profoundly shaped by our relationships in good ways and in bad ways. I can attest to this personally because before I met my wife, Kate, I was a mess. But now that I know Kate and am married to Kate, I am less of a mess than I was. I am profoundly shaped by my kids. They are awesome. I am proudly, profoundly shaped by you. You are awesome. And walking with you helps strengthen me in my faith. And I pray that walking with one another strengthens you in your faith. We all need Christian friends. Even Jesus had Christian friends. He had Mary, and he had Martha, and he had the disciples. And within the disciples, he had Peter and James and John. He had his brothers, James and Jude. Do you have Christian friends? Do you have Christian mentors? Do you have Christian people who are willing to walk with you and talk with you and speak words of grace and truth into your life to help you become the person that God has created you to be that is so important, vitally important? We need that. Happily ever after people are surrounded by happily ever after friends. Fourth big idea Happily ever after people need accountability. Now, after Nehemiah finished rebuilding the city and restoring the people, which he did by the end of chapter 12, he went back to Babylon to be with the Persian king, Artaxerxes, once again. Mission accomplished. He's done, right? End of story. Time to retire. Well, not so fast. Nehemiah heard that things were not going so well for the people in Jerusalem. Tobiah was couch surfing in the temple. The priests were not getting paid. The Levites were not getting paid. People were doing business on the Sabbath. People were marrying unbelievers and having children with unbelievers. And so Nehemiah came back. He came back to hold the people accountable. He told them, you are sinning. You are dishonoring the Lord. And the people said, you're right. We're sorry. We repent. We'll never do it again. Now, would they have changed course without Nehemiah? The answer is probably not. Are you and I likely to change course when we find ourselves in a pattern of sin without someone like Nehemiah, without accountability? Again, the answer is probably not. Do you see how important this is? Do you see how much we need accountability 
that's one of the reasons why we encourage people, frankly, to join the church. Official church membership is a way of formalizing that accountability structure. Now, when you join the church, as folks did today, you make vows, the most important vows being your vows of allegiance to the Lord, absolutely critical. But you're also saying, I want the elders of this church to hold me accountable. And by making you a voting member of the church, what we are saying, not only as leaders, but as a congregation is, we want you to hold us accountable. We want you to have an official voice in this church. We want you to help us discern our calling as a congregation in this community and throughout the world. Very important. Happily ever after people need accountability. Happily ever after people give accountability. We need to be each other's Nehemiah. Minus the hair pulling and furniture throwing. Which is where we're going next. Fifth big idea. Happily ever after people need passion. Nehemiah was a very passionate person, which is perhaps the understatement of the year. Verse 8, Nehemiah writes, And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials, and I said to them, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Throughout the chapter, Nehemiah is confronting people and challenging people and threatening people and cursing people and beating people. It's like an episode of the Mars Hill podcast. It's like, that he did it all. Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. Now, I think in saying all of this, it is fair to say that much of what goes on in this chapter is descriptive and not prescriptive. Okay? As elders, we do not beat people or curse people or pull out people's hair. That only happens once a year. It's called general assembly. Okay? But just kind of normally around here, no, no, we're not doing that. If anybody in this room is bald, it's not us. We didn't do it. We did not pull out anybody's hair. Now, don't miss this. Nehemiah was passionate about God's glory. He cared so much because he loved God. He cared so much because he loved people. He cared so much because he remembered the exile. He remembered 
everything that they had lost because of their sin. And he said, we cannot do that again. We cannot go back there. It must be a new day for the people of God. Now, did he go a little bit overboard? Yes, I think it's fair to say that he went a little bit overboard. But I think it's also fair to say that many of us go a little bit underboard. How many of us are passionate about the glory of God? How many of us see our brothers and sisters in sin and we shrug our shoulders and we say, ah, oh, there's nothing I can do. It's not a big deal. Who cares? My encouragement to all of you is to be passionate about the glory of God. To be passionate about his worship. To be passionate about his word. To be passionate about prayer. To be passionate about other people. To be passionate about mercy and missions and evangelism and help and healing and hope to our neighbors, many of whom do not have the hope of the gospel that we have because of Christ. Happily ever after, people are passionate about God's house and God's people and God's name and God's family and God's glory and God's grace, which is where we're going next. Sixth big idea, last one. Happily ever after, people need grace. Grace. Listen to Nehemiah's last words. Verse 31. Remember me, O my God, for good. God answered Nehemiah's prayer. He remembered Nehemiah. He will remember you. He remembers us by sending us a greater Nehemiah in the form of his own son, Jesus. Like Nehemiah, who came back to the city of Jerusalem after the exile and saw that the city was literally in shambles, just piles of broken rubble standing where this great city used to be. Jesus, our Redeemer, came to the beautiful, majestic, pristine world that he created, and he found it in shambles. A, a pile of rubble created by our sin. He found broken down families and broken down people and broken down churches and broken down communities like Nehemiah who rebuilt the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Jesus puts broken down people back together again. And the amazing thing about it is he did it by becoming a broken down person. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had broken it, he gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Jesus entered into the world as it is, broken by sin, and was broken by sin, enduring the wrath of God on the cross so that all of his people might find healing and hope and joy 
and resurrection as God puts us back together again. If you are a broken down person, and we all are in one way or another broken down people, broken down by sin, broken down by shame, broken down by physical ailments, broken down by heartache and loss, broken down by fear. Come to Jesus in faith. And the God who was broken on the cross will put your life back together again. And, like Nehemiah and the Israelites, you will live happily ever after in this life and in the life to come. Let's go to God in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for putting broken people back together again. We thank you for Nehemiah, as flawed as he was. You used him in a mighty way. And so I pray that you would use us, all of your flawed people, in majestic and mighty ways, that we might be your agents and ambassadors of healing and hope and restoration so that many, many people would live happily ever after in the kingdom of God. Hear our prayer and sustain us. In Jesus' name, amen.